Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn in them to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, as we return to the book of Ephesians, we're going to be in verses 1 through 14 this morning as we've uh, continued on uh, since we started in, in the merger of these two churches and, and the creation of the church at West Creek, uh, we've seen just God's goodness uh, showered upon us in, in so many ways. Uh, and so I think this passage uh, will, will be a continued encouragement as we imitate God. Namely, that because God has called us into the light, that we should imitate him as beloved children. And so we're going to look at this passage just in, in two parts this morning. And so if you're following along with me uh, in, in your own Bible, uh, in the words on the screen, or the Bible in front of you, if you're using the, the red Bible there in the seat in front of you, we're on page 978, help you find it a little more easily. We're going to start with verses 1 through 5. This is what the word of the Lord says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who it is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Amen. Well, in these first five verses, we see that God's word is calling us to be imitators of Imitators of God, as, as we said in the, the kids' time, uh, this called to act like him. Uh, this is kind of an odd spot. This is the, the one time in, in the New Testament where we are called specifically to imitate God. Elsewhere, Paul has said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And uh, we would, of course, see the, the call to, to Christian behavior and character as one which imitates God. But this is the only passage which outright says, be imitators of God. And I think it's really strong, and we need to, to recognize the, the uniqueness of this passage, but not to leave it here in just ambiguity, but instead to look at it, what does this look like in our lives? What does it look like as a believer in Christ to be an imitator of God? If we were to just throw that out there, to, to be imitators of God, and without any qualification, uh, we might be tempted to, to start where we might uh, in Genesis and say, all right, well, I'm going to do everything that God does. And the very first thing that he does is out of nothing, create everything. And so, well, maybe scratch that one off the list and we'll keep on moving. Uh, but instead, he doesn't leave this uh, in vague terms. Rather, he gives us the, the detailed application of what this looks like in our lives. And so I want to draw just four things here in these, these first five verses about what does it look like to be an imitator of God. The very first thing is that as we are imitating God, uh, is to be rooted in our identity. Notice he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. This is continuing the trend of the, the chapter before where we've been preaching through is this idea that we are putting off the old self in order to put on the new. 
That is that we, we put aside our past and our sin and what is lying behind us, and instead we clothe ourselves in the garments of life in Christ. As children are, are learning the world, and when we were children, uh, you are all familiar uh, with that one word, incredible question, why? Right? And we're going to do this. Well, why? Not, not necessarily just uh, you know, testing our limits or, or trying to figure out where that line is, but also just navigating and learning what life is. Well, why do we why do we do this? Why is the sky blue? Why is uh, the world like this? Why do we go to church on Sundays? Why, 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 why? And we can often fall into that that point of man if we're in great moods or if we're just we're there and we're ready to instruct and train, we're ready to explain or or Google or, or look up. But so often we find ourselves, and what is that answer that we give? Why? Because I said so, right? Because I said so. And I, I think so often uh, we, we can think of, of God as that way. So why does God call us to live in this way? Why does he call us to stop sinning? Why does he call us to live a, a moral life, a good life? Well, is it just because God says so? Well, we can often kind of reduce it to that, this idea that it's just a, a divine command, that God says it, I believe it, that settles it. But we recognize as we actually look in the scripture, we look at the character of God, we look at the, the reasons that he calls us to himself, and we see that following God, as we're learning the world, learning what it is to, to be Christ followers, is to see and be the fullness of what God has created us to be. That a moral life, a good life, is seated in our identity with God. That we are imitators of God. Why? Because we are his beloved children. We, we imitate God because he is a father to us. And like a child learning from their parents, looking to the things that they do, the things that they say, the ways that they do and say them, we so imitate God because it is rooted into our very identity. That God has adopted us into his family and therefore says, be like me. That we're adopted into his family. We've put off this old self and we put on the new. God has, has given us his name. That even to be called a, a Christian is like that, that certificate of adoption. That there is a name change that happens in me. That I am now in Christ. That this is a, a part of who he has called me to be. And so what does this look like? All right, If I am seeding my morality in my identity, if I'm... I, imitating God because he has called me to be his child, what does this look like in my life? Well, I think it's, it's three things that flow out of this identity. And the very first one is that we would be walking in love. Look at verse 2. He says, And walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what does this love look like? Yes, it's, it's the prior, everything that we saw before us. We talked about two weeks ago uh, at the end of chapter 4, the idea of the garments of holy living. What it is it that we, we put on? So we take off these old garments and, and we put on a newness of living. And so we put on, to remind you, a holy truth, a holy anger, a holy work, a holy encouragement, a holy spirit, a holy heart. It's, it's all of these things, but it's also typified and culminates, comes to this, this point and specifically, a love that gives as Christ gives. 
to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Love here is is more than just an emotion. It's more than just that I feel love towards God or that I feel love towards you, though this should also be true. But this also should be a, a love which moves me and moves you to action. It says that Christ gave himself up for us, that he lived his life and went to his death as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This idea of a fragrant offering draws our, our minds back to the Old Testament as, as God is calling his people to him, calling him to uh, them to a covenant relationship with him. And what does he call them to? He calls them, in, in one sense, to deal with their sin. As they deal with their sin, they, they're given a, a sacrificial system. The way to, to pay for their sin in, in blood and in purification and atonement, but also in ways to communicate with him and commune with him, to worship him. One of these ways was a fragrant offering, that they would burn spices, they would, they would burn meat and fat, and they, they would burn these things. Why? Because it says that God enjoyed them. It says that, that God uh, enjoyed this, this smell, this fragrance as worship to him. God liked barbecue, and that's, that's wonderful. I, I like barbecue, too. Uh, and so we, we see this laid out, right? This idea that we each have a favorite smell, whatever that is. One of my favorite smells uh, is, is coffee, or just the, the brewing of, of coffee. Uh, but I also sleepwalk, and so I can't drink coffee too late into the day. But my wife is, is kind, and so she bought me uh, for my office there in the study is, is a uh, coffee-scented candle. Uh, and so that's, that's great. I can, I can like this. And, and smell this candle. What if your life was was condensed into a candle? This, what would what would you smell like? And I don't I don't want to know your your perfume or your cologne or your bo or whatever that is. But I mean the the way that you live, the things that you value. If we were to condense those in, into a scent, it says that Jesus' life, the way that he loved his disciples, the way that he loved God the Father and the Spirit was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This idea of fragrance speaks both to strength and pleasure of smell. The Greek word here is one that will sound familiar to us. It's literally euodious, right? You being this idea of goodness. that We hear it in English words like eulogy, right? To speak a good word of someone. A, a euphoria, right? This this pleasant feeling, and here you odious, odious odor. This idea that there is a, a strength to it. it. It is something that even from uh, from a ways off, we can smell. It says that, that Christ's life, his giving himself up for us, him going to the cross and the resurrection, was a good fragrance and a good odor before God. As he calls us to imitate God, shouldn't our lives in the same way be of a pleasing aroma before God? That you can smell someone before you even see them. This idea that our, our actions, our love for one another and love for God would be fragrant. Not in a weakened candle that even when you light it, all you smell is, is the match. But rather this pleasant aroma. That loves as Christ loves. 
that cares as Christ cares, that encourages as Christ encourages, than one that walks in love. Part of this is that our lives would be a good offering, a good aroma, a good odor, is that we would put off sin. Namely, in verse 3, as it says, so that we would flee immorality. He lists a number. He says, but sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. That sin should be unheard of among the church. This isn't dismissing the reality as we see so often how the church can be steeped in controversy and tragedy and pain and suffering. But he says that this isn't the standard that we're called to. That for those that are in Christ, as we are pursuing God, as we are imitating God, as we recognize our identity and walk in love, that we will necessarily flee from immorality. That we would flee from sin. That it shouldn't even be heard of among us. This affects the ways that we act and speak to each other. Here he lists and even goes to, to our humor. That humor is, is a gift of God that God has created us to, to be full, embodied creatures. But there are proper humors and improper humors. Be sure of this. I'm sorry, in verse 4 he says, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead be thanksgiving. So even the ways that we, we speak of one another speaks to the way that God has called and redeemed us. Marius Victorinus says this. He says, The name, the mind, and the conscience of the saints demands that the tongue itself should be an agent of holiness. Is your tongue an agent of holiness? That's such a, a powerful phrase. Is the way that we speak, is the way that we, uh, we share with one another, encourage one another here in person or via email or, or text or social media or, or wherever this may play out. If God were to, to be sitting beside you, which... He is, right? But if, if your pastor was to be sitting beside you, would you post or say or, or tweet that thing? So often, it's, just, it's always funny to me, you know, someone wants to, to tell a dirty joke, and it's like, oh, sorry, pastor. It's like, why, why do you care what I think? Why, why I, I think it's probably just because it's, it's convicting you. No, you probably shouldn't be saying that. But, but why? Well, because we, if we are agents of holiness, or our tongue is an agent of holiness, there are higher and better To flee immorality is, is to walk in love in these ways. And finally, that to be an imitator of God here in the first five verses is that we would inherit the kingdom. See, if we're rooted in our identity, if we're walking in love and we're fleeing immorality, God says that we are, are worthy by virtue of Christ and his work, the person of God and dwelling within us, we are worthy to inherit but, in verse 5, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, covetous, that is, is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That if we're to inherit the kingdom of God, that we cannot have it both ways. That we cannot both hold sin and the kingdom. This isn't speaking to our past reality, those of us who were... Uh, in the world as covetousness or as the world as impure as the world in our previous sin but as those who have put that off 
as those who are now pursuing Christ, now pursuing the kingdom, we recognize that we must put off one in order to possess the other. There was a toss-up in my mind this week uh, as I was considering what the, the kids' time message will be. We, we typically uh, try to, to form and shape it so that it reflects kind of the, the main drive of, of the sermon. Uh, and I was very tempted uh, to recycle one that I had done a few years ago and is, is I think, most uh, memorable. And so maybe we'll, we'll use it again in the future, but uh, we'll, we'll share it now in this way. The idea that we cannot hold both sin and the kingdom. You may have heard uh, in, in my speech, a y'all slip out every once in a while. Uh, I am from, initially, I grew up, born and raised uh, in East Texas. And so uh, what that means is that I know how to, cra- to catch and trap raccoons. Uh, and so the way that you can, among other w- ways, uh, to catch and, and trap a raccoon uh, is a, a great illustration of what does it look like to walk in a holy life. And so what I've done with the kids is, is to illustrate this is just taking a, a glass vase so we can see inside of it, uh, but a hole just in general in, in the wild in a, a tree stump or whatever it might be is to hollow out uh, just an entrance just big enough for a raccoon to get its hand in. What you do is you take a, a ball of, of tin foil or, or a coin or, or something just big enough to fit in the hole, but just barely. Because what happens is the raccoon comes and sees this shiny, glittery thing and says, I want that shiny, glittery thing. And so what does he do? He sticks his hand inside the hole and he grabs on. But because of the size of his hand and because of the size of the ball and the size of the hole, as he grabs onto it, he cannot pull his hand out. He's stuck. He's trapped in raccoons or greedy creatures. They want this thing that is holding them there. And they're not tied. They're not roped or caged. And yet, because of their own stubbornness, because they will not let go, they're able to be caught. How similar are we to these creatures? That sin has enticed us as this shiny thing here in this hole. And we say, I want it. And so we reach in and we grab and we take hold. And death is coming. The hunter is coming. And Christ is standing here saying, let go of the sin. is that the kingdom of God is worth far more than tenfold. It so outweighs the price that is before us. And Christ has called us to inherit the kingdom of God. That only the children of God will inherit the children of God. And that children of God necessarily imitate them. That we are Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. 
For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So not only does Paul here call the Ephesians and call us to be imitators of God, but he calls us to walk in This idea of of walking is so prevalent in the book of Ephesians, and it's exactly what it translates to here in our our culture, that we walk the walk, we talk the talk. This is the way that we live and embody this doing of the Christian life, that we would walk in the light. So what does this look like? What does it look like to walk in the light of Christ? Once again, it's a rootedness in our foundation, that we would be rooted in truth and goodness. He says to to consider the ways that we walk, to consider the ways that we live as ones who have fled the darkness, who have released the tinfoil, if you will, and are now called into the kingdom. We're called into the light, and we are now rooted in truth and goodness. He says we're not dismissing sin or explaining explaining it away. He says that there are those that would deceive us with empty words. He says that the wrath of God is, upon, is going to come upon them and that we should not be their partners. Those who, who dismiss sin or explain it away, those who, who partner with that, to partner with wickedness, are those upon whom the God, or God's wrath rests. So often the church has fallen into these things. He says that we shouldn't be named in these ways. We, we shouldn't be uh, even speaking of these things. And yet and there are times when sin boils up to the surface and we are consumed in these ways. In the 18th and 19th century, here in the United States and specifically uh, in New England, there were churches who would not only condone slavery, not only would have their members and sell and and deal slaves. But historian Jennifer Ost also catalogs that there were churches who owned slaves. That the congregation themselves would would get together, purchase a a slave or a family of slaves, and they would lease them out to members from year to year. The idea here was that in in God's goodness, uh, somehow if we would call it that, that leasing these slaves would pay for the minister's salary. That we would release the, the church itself from, from caring for this task and instead oppressing others, fully breaking from the, the picture that Christ has given in Scripture. The church took part in wickedness. And they would dismiss it and they would explain it away. And, and like verse 6 here, that they would deceive with empty words. And because of these things, the wrath of God. We can look at our history and we can look at that tragedy and and pain 
saying, oh, we were there. Not in, in this place. And yet sin continues to run rampant in our culture and in our churches. And this ought not be so. So what does light look like? What does it look like to put off this darkness to walk in the light, to be imitators of God. Again, it's to flee immorality and to walk in love. Avoiding sin and pursuing justice. Looking for the truth and goodness. Not just goodness at what benefits us, but a common good of those who are seeking the kingdom. That we would discern to God. Looking again at verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This isn't a legalistic regimen, this idea of a to-do list or a rule book of someone coming in and, and playing this game that we play with kids. Well, Jesus says, do this and this and this and this and this. And if you do all of these things, then you might be able to get no, we recognize that the, the work and, and salvation of, of the church is already done in Christ. That Christ alone can justify. That Christ alone can save. And what follows that, the imitation of Christ, the walking in the light, is not our way to, to curry favor with God or to earn this salvation. But rather, it's a, a thoughtful examination and consideration of what pleases the Lord because we are that we pursue God because he has called us to him, because it is, it is good. And so what does it look like to, to do what is pleasing? Colossians can help here. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, Paul writes this. He says, And so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Is he described fully pleasing to God as? He says, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his saints in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what is a life fully pleasing to God? It's bearing fruit in every good work. It's increasing in the knowledge of God. It's being strengthened with all power according to his might for endurance and patience and joy. Giving thanks to the Father. That we would discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This is not discerning what is pleasing of what is God to you? What is, what is God to me? What is this this God-sized hole, and how do I want to fill it? What does God look like in my experience? Because this is only to ultimately serve and please ourselves, but rather that we would seek and know the God of Scripture. That we would seek and know God as he presents himself. Not as we, as we have decided to, to paint him or, or to color him and to say, this is what I, I think God is like. This is what I think God would want me to do. Because we can take this verse and we can pluck it out of context and just say, I'm trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord and don't tell me otherwise. Then I'm going to do what's right in my eyes and I'm going to say that 
And I think this is pleasing to the Lord. Rather, that we would seek and know the God of Scripture as he has called us to live, as he has laid out what it is to walk in life and truth and peace. And finally, that we would shine the light of Christ. For it is shamefully to speak what these things are and what is done in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul here is referencing back to Isaiah 60, the, the passage that we, we read and then, and then sang this idea that, that God has called us to arise, to shine, for the light has come. For the rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The exposure here is that all that is being called sin, to call sin, sin, and when we call sin, sin, to reprove, rebuke, and correct it within the church. It's to live as those who are imitating God, as those who are walking in the light. This is the, the biblical and restorative church discipline and virtuous living. That we would come into the light and we would call others into the light. That we would speak to the dead, those who are dead in their sin, and say, you no longer have to sit there in that grave. Why? Because Christ has died so that you may live. Christ has, has shined light into the darkness of our lives and of our sin. started out, and one of our, our first classes uh, was a, a history of Western civilization. So we were reading Plato and, and Aristotle and um, Socrates and, and all these things, and I, I hated it. I, I, I had come to Bible school, and I had wanted to, to study the Bible, and, and so I actually got coffee with my professor, and I just said, I, I don't get why I'm doing this. I, this, this is useless to me. I didn't understand it. And thankfully, he was, he was patient. I've since apologized to him. Uh, but he, he was patient with me and walked through uh, this idea that all of truth is, is God's truth. And that he can often, one, it's better to understand what's happened in history, east and west, uh, to, to be able to respond to our culture. But also the, the incredible and profound truth that even um, men apart from uh, later, I, I came to realize this reading reading Plato again. And Plato has this, uh, it, it's called the allegory of the cave. And he's speaking of education, and he's trying to, to convince uh, his, his hearers of training, of, of the benefit of, of education. And, and yet I can't be struck over and over and over again without seeing the truth of the gospel in here. The, the, the premise of, of this is that uh, from birth, men and women have been chained to a, a wall in a cave. They, they can't move their neck. They're, they're fixed only on what's ahead, only this, this blank canvas. And as they're, they're chained there, there are the, the prison guards, if you will, and they're uh, putting shadows and uh, fire and casting kind of this, this picture. And this is reality to them. It, it's these shadows dancing on the wall in, in front of them. And he says that if we were to, to free one if they were to, to go out into the world itself, stumble out of the cave, 
and, and see the, the true beauty of reality. Not shadows here on a wall, but rather the, the beauty of, of, of trees and nature and creation and rivers and, and all that is around us. How, how jarring and life-giving it can be. And, and he speaks to this and he says, this is the, the reality of education, that we're, we're brought out of this cave. We're, we see the fullness of reality around us. And then there's an obligation for those that are in the light to venture back down into the cave. Why? To free those who are chained. And you read this as a believer, and you're like, are we sure that Plato isn't talking about Jesus? And it's 300 years before, so no. But <laughs> isn't that the picture here? Is that our reality before Christ is we're chained to a wall. We're dead in our sin, and we see what we think is good. We see what we think is real and beautiful. shadows dancing on the wall. And then Christ comes, he sets us free and calls us into the light. He shines his light into the darkness. But the beauty that follows, the glory that follows, and the obligation that follows. That if we are found in the light, he has called us to reach back into that cave, to draw others out with us. Why? Because Christ has given us grace. Christ has called us here. Christ has called us to growth and unity. He has called us into the light to imitate him, his beloved child. Father, we thank you for your goodness, Lord, for your calling us, Lord, out of darkness, out of death, out of the cave, and into the light of the kingdom. Lord, show us what it is to Lord, let us walk and love and walk in light. Lord, let us love one another as you have loved us. Lord, let us put on your character and put off, Lord, the sin that entangles us. Lord, we ask that you would guide us.